Welcome to Intrepid Wisdom. My name is Deborah Jay, and in this podcast series, we'll look at connecting the wisdom of the generations from old to young. We'll be discussing topics such as life and love, relationships and sex, and we'll be discussing business and spirituality, as well as health, age, and much, much more. We want to cover all these topics and go deep into the minds of some of the most real life people out there so we can inspire you to broaden your perspectives and find the courage to go just a little bit deeper into your heart. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. excited about today's guest on Intrepid Wisdom, Pamela Alexander of wisdomoftheswan.com. Pamela S. Alexander, PhD, is a passionate poet, an artist, dream analyst, and personal and spiritual growth advocate on a lifelong mission to expand people's consciousness and to help them reach greater heights. We will be discussing how she found her passion and turned it into her career fairy tales and hidden meanings, the divine feminine, and how media has shaped our lives, with some helpful tips on how you can interpret your own dreams. Tell me a bit about yourself. DreamWorks started because I had, um, kind of backing up a little bit before then, I'd gone to college, I gotten a degree in interior design, so a bachelor's degree, got out of school, and right out of school had a job with a corporation, a big insurance company, spent three years there, you know, climbing the corporate ladder, did really well, got promotions and raises, and and three years, I stopped, I remember the day, and said, this can't be it, this this just does not feel right. And I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know anybody who was having that conversation with themselves or anyone else. And I decided to leave. And I was... um, And what age were you at that stage? Probably about 28, maybe. No, I would have been... It was probably more like 25, around 25. So I thought, well you know, this is a great job. So this is a great resume I have. So it'd be easy to just relocate and pick up a job like this someplace else. And that was not the case. (laughs) It wasn't easy to pick up a job someplace else. So I really kind of drifted until I ended up back in design again, just because I had no idea what else I could possibly do. And so for several years, I had a few different design jobs. And then I was living with my partner, my fiance, and we were going to split up. And I sat down to figure out my finances. And I said, yeah, they don't pay us enough for me to actually live on my own. So I went in and talked to the owners of the company. And I said, you know, you're not paying a living wage. You need to pay us more. And he basically said, yeah, we don't need to (laughs) because, you know, people in your position are willing to work for this wage. So that was kind of the bottom line. And I said, well, then I'm leaving. I don't care where I have to go and what I have to do. I'm going to go find a way to support myself because, you know, I mean, I have a four-year degree. 
So I ended up moving to Philadelphia and um, I got a job that paid and, and uh, a few years into being there on the train into the city, the commuter train, I met my husband, who had, the guy who had become my husband. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, so we kind of moved in together. When we did, he had just gotten an offer for an assignment in London. So once we moved in together, then a few months after that, he turned it into a, an expatriate package. And so we got married and moved to London. So, wow. yeah. Oh my God. So right, Whirlwind. So right before I moved, I was, I was ironing my clothes for work one night and, and he said, you're, you're not, once we get married, you don't have to work anymore. And I said, well, why would you say that? And he said, because every Sunday as you're ironing your clothes for work, you cry. And I was like, I do like, I didn't have any idea that I even did that. Oh, wow. And so oh, wow. I was like, yeah, okay. Well, you know, I knew I wasn't happy with design anyway. So this was like a great opportunity for me to kind of spend some time thinking about it. What did I really want to do? Who did I really want to be? And so we went to London and I've moved a lot in my life. So it was like, I'm, I'm amazing at packing, unpacking, settling us in. So within like a record time, we have a place to live. We're all unpacked. We're all moved in. And I remember this day very well, walking across the living room. And I said, uh-oh, I had never thought what was going to happen after I unpacked us. Like everything was such a whirlwind up till that moment. Wow. Well, yeah. The stress of it all kind of just, you landed. You just landed. I was like, I... I don't know what to do. Like, what am I going to do all day? Like, I don't know anybody. I don't have, we were far enough out of London that it wasn't like I was just going to wander around the city and museums all day. It was just, it was too much of a commute from there. So I was kind of lost and I began just reading and um, a lot of uh, fiction, just didn't really know what to do. And then I happened across Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. It's kind of a reignite your creativity kind of a thing. Not that I had any creativity, so I'm not quite sure I picked up the book, but it was one of those moments, those defining moments in life where your direction is going to shift. You don't know it until you look back and you say, oh, that was a moment there. So she recommends, one of the things she recommends doing is writing three pages of stream of consciousness every day. So you're supposed to just write anything. The fan is running, the dog is snoring, the car is beeping. So even if you have nothing to write. So I had nothing to write, day after day, nothing to write. And I was like, well, what is the point of this, right? To just write about the car horn tonking or whatever. So I remembered a dream one morning and I was like, oh, wow, this is a great way to fill up these morning pages is to remember your dreams and just write those down. And then I started to wonder, what the heck? Like, what is this all about? What are dreams about? What are they for? And... I didn't really pick up any books, but we were there for a couple of years and then we moved back to Philadelphia and I jumped right into graduate school and I thought I'm going to go for psychology because I've always been interested in psychology. And at this stage you weren't back working, you had stayed off working and you were kind of just still finding yourself. How long was that period for? Two years in London. 
So I went back to, we went back to Philly and I, I jumped into that, found us a house in record time, got us packed on pack moved. <laughs> it's all done. Yeah. So, so we get back there and I'm still intrigued by the dreams. I, I probably was still writing them down at that point. I'm in graduate school in psychology and I asked every single professor, well, what can you tell me about dreams? And no one could answer the question. And again, by the grace of God, I mean, or whatever you want to call it, the universe, somebody happened to come to this Catholic school that I went to and offered a weekend workshop on dreams. And no way. Yeah. Wow. I, and I, I'm surprised. I'm surprised there wasn't any dream analysis by Freud. Didn't he do a whole set, a whole thing on dream analysis? So in the, in the college, they didn't cover that. Yeah. You know what? They, it, it, it's like a sentence in a book, you know, that describes all of the, the major um, psychologists or psych, uh, psychiatrists kind of historically, but no one really, nothing really kind of got into it until this, until this weekend. It was like, it was actually one credit course. And I was that student in the class who cannot shut up. I was, I had a thousand questions and he had the answers and I was just, oh my God. And everybody else in the class was like, for God's Shut sake, up. if she asks another question. <laughs> <laughs> but just, it was like a magical key and it opened the door and it was so lucky because it was just a short class. And I, I, I don't think I ever read a book on it. I always was just like, the dreams are going to show me. And I just opened the door to it and I began, he gave me enough information that I could start interpreting and I interpreted for several years, every single dream I had every night, like four and five dreams a night, night after night, I was interpreting and friends and family. Four, four or five dreams a night, every yes. night. Wow. So I, what kind of the beauty of it was that without any preconceived notions, I went in like just open, like, okay, what do you want to show me? What do I need to know? What do I need to clear? And so I have totally allowed the dreams to guide me for, it's been about 18 years now. Oh, wow. So Beautiful. my breadth of understanding of the dreams, I've never seen anyone who has approached it. And, and there may be people out there that have, like I, I'm not exposed to a lot of it because I'm satisfied with what I do. But the breadth of what is possible and contained in the dreams is unbelievable. It's like every single night, your higher self sends you information about every single aspect of your life every night. And because we typically don't think in symbolism, symbolism, I believe, is the language of the soul. So the dreams are coming and speaking to your soul not to your conscious mind. Mm -hmm. So they're coming to give it information to wake it up. I mean, on every level from health, diet, herbs. I mean, I would wake up and they would tell me I should be taking a particular herb and I had no idea what it was, so I'd have to go look it up. Or I dream of a flower and I'd wake up and look it up and I need that flower essence. It's very interesting because like for years, uh, like I've always journaled, I've journaled since I could hold a pen in my hand. And I wouldn't always journal dreams, but when I wake up, I, I dream very, very vividly at times. And I seem to go through phases where I dream a lot. But when I dream, they're just crazy. My dreams are just, they're madness, absolute madness. But what's very interesting is when I do go to write them down, 
at the time I'm like, oh, maybe this means that, and maybe this means that, but only until I write it down, I'm like, oh my God, would you look at that? Like I'm writing it and I'm like, now I get it. And usually what I found is certain people aren't the people that they are in the dream. They actually represent a different person. And it's very, it's been very interesting through the years to see how somebody from my childhood actually represents somebody from my adulthood. And I would have never considered them to be the same person, but the characteristics were in, were like on par. And I couldn't have done that in my waking self. My, my higher self, my subconscious, my unconscious has paralleled those energies. It's more to do with their energies. But yeah, symbolism, absolutely. Symbolism, and just to clarify for anybody that would be listening, symbolism can be, it's what I believe it's whatever it is to that person. So symbolism for me might be people, places, things, colors. It, to somebody else it might be an object or shapes or sounds or textures or whatever. So it's going to be different for each person. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, that's that's my take on it as well. Also, it can, it can be, it can be, it, there can be, kind of a, a deeper level of meaning that is similar across people. So the, the kind of interesting thing about symbols is that it can be one thing today and another thing tomorrow. And if you have a big dream, you might have noticed that. that the symbols morph over time or the people morph over the time or the meaning of the dream does. So symbols are never kind of locked into anything. And, and because our literal rational day-to-day -day mind tends to look at things as like, okay, you can look it up in the dictionary and that's, this is what it means. Linear, very linear and very fixed. Whereas nothing in, in the universe is fixed. It's all completely mobile, absolutely. And it's polarity as well. It changes. So yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. So I definitely, when I, in the, in the example I use when I teach is if you have a dream of your childhood home and your home was lovely and you know just idyllic then that means one thing but if you had a terrible upbringing in your childhood home was traumatic i mean it's an entirely you can't look up uh, childhood home in a dictionary and have it cover everything so you're right that's my take is just from my perspective or your perspective or um the dreamer's perspective but in session it's interesting because the other person's take on it can also add information because it's a whole entirely new viewpoint that you aren't seeing from. So lots of times, like in a session when I'm doing it one-on-one, -on -one, that really can add another layer of information too that's not seen. There's like a collective conscious going on. So I, I do feel that there's your archetypal symbols, which I think Freud actually dips into and, and a couple of other people dip into. So you've got your, or maybe it's Erickson, I don't know, I can't remember, but it's, um, you've got your archetypes, but they change from nation to nation, from, you know, depending on what country you're from, depending on what background you're from, depending on what your religious aspects are. So they can be completely different, but there does tend to be the collective consciousness of Abby Daddy symbols. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the major arcana of symbols, if you know what I mean, that you kind of work with. Because I know for me, I would dream of say, like just to give a couple of examples, if people were listening and you had a dream, there's a couple of your stereotypical ones, which I would be familiar with, which is your, when you're dreaming of your home, it's usually to do with your security, to do with your boundaries, your comfort level. So for me, if I'm dreaming of my home home where I grew up, where I, where I grew up as a child, 
funnily enough, it doesn't always look like my home. And sometimes that home is a completely different home. But that depends on where my boundaries are at the time. It depends on how secure or safe I feel in myself and my life at the moment. So I know home is one. Teeth is apparently to do with wealth. I don't know what people losing your teeth is all about wealth or or uh, finances or whatever, but uh, that's another one. But if you were to give people a few ideas to play about with, if they were to wake up in the morning and have some dreams, are there some reasonably stereotypical ones you can give them clues on? Well, just to make a comment about the teeth, because that's kind of a unit, a lot of people have that. And so the way that I approach dreams is from an embodied perspective. And so what that means to me is that I take the dream in the very first place we go after I say kind of what are your general first impressions is we go right into the body. And so especially with the teeth, it's a really good one because the feeling that's associated with your teeth and having problems with your teeth falling out or whatever is what... Do you have a sense of what that feeling was that was associated with that? Maybe fear or insecurity or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. What I've seen is helplessness. Like there's this sense of, oh my gosh. It's like, it's falling out. How can I stop this? And they're crumbling and you're like, oh my gosh. And, and there is nothing you can do about it. So what we do is we, first of all, go into the emotion of it. So where does that feeling sit in your body? So we go start with the chakras and go from the lowest and work our way up. So if you say like that feeling is in the belly, then we go down there and we witness the sensation. That's it. We don't label it. We don't send it sparkles. We don't like turn it into butterflies and let it fly away. We sit with it like a child who's upset and we just comfort and calm. And it's our own inner child who at some point historically felt that sense of helplessness and no one was there to comfort or witness her. And so we imagine that child sitting on our lap and we are the parent that wasn't there, that couldn't be there for them. And as we witness the emotion of helplessness and this sense that she felt in that situation that evoked that maybe the first time we're transforming that consciousness just by witnessing it and allowing the emotion to flow and being with it beautiful i know when i've done i do a lot of meditation and reiki and reflexology and all this thing um, I've also done a bit of hypnotherapy and psychotherapy. I've done, I've one of these people who's done a little bit of everything, but in my own meditation work that I've adapted to take into account a bit of Reiki and just general uh, energy work has been literally, as you were saying, which is very interesting, it's to literally sit with the body and to empty the mind of thought and to go into the feeling of the body and to feel what do you feel in your body and where do you feel it? Like it could be tingling in your big toe it doesn't really matter and it's not to engage in that it's literally just to be passive in it and to just as you say exactly that to just sit with it and I remember sitting in meditation I was in India and I was doing this meditation and this emotion just kept rushing and rushing and I was just doing a normal meditation and I was like what is this and I was like okay switch off the brain Deb switch off the brain and it kept coming up and it kept coming up and I kept trying to open and open the space for it to come and then I just 
sat bawling, crying for no reason. I was very contented and I was very happy, but my body was crying. And it was actually an incredibly therapeutic and cathartic moment. So what you're saying completely resonates with me. The fact that you're sitting in with the energy and where it is in your body. And I love that you're taking a dream, which turns into quite often a very logical thing. Oh, what did that mean? I'm going to attach it to this storyline and this thing, this thing. But you're actually bringing it right back into the body and back into your spirit, really, which is really beautiful. It's lovely. Very nice. And you're doing something with it. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that's just the first level. So we, we kind of take it at that level of the emotion and allow the emotion to even evolve and change, as you say. So when we sit in stillness, it's like a pond. And all of the stuff that's in the pond floats to the surface. So that's kind of what the way that I see what's happening when we sit with it and why we just sit with it. So I really try to work with my clients over time to build up their ability to sit because lots of times, you know, they'll be like, well, what am I supposed to be doing here? As they begin to kind of get it, they become more comfortable with that sitting. And so once we feel the emotion either move from there to another place and witness it in the new place or allow it to transform and resolve itself. Then we go into the meaning of the dream. So what is the dream trying to convey? Because there's information that wants to come to consciousness. So once we get past that point of allowing and accepting, they can sometimes now trace it back to, and the emotion may trace it back to that seminal experience where that first started. And I liken it to like dominoes. So typically in life, it's like the first domino. And then subsequently throughout life, other dominoes will come right behind it in the same line as the energy of that initial experience. And so in my perception, that's what life is about. Life is us magnetizing those moments that align with that first experience in order to see, feel the emotion and resolve it. And then I say that that knocks that first domino down and the whole row falls. And that's where the real transformation comes in your life. Mm-hmm. And so you were asking earlier about archetypes. And one of the places that I really saw this was when I was working on my book. And I looked at the myth of Amor and Psyche, as the, which is a part of another story, but took that myth and then saw those subsequently the fairy tales that came after it. So when you say what are archetypes, you can look at a fairy tale and you can look at like just say fairy tales in general. And what do we see? We see things like the good mother is no longer in the story. If you think of the fairy tales, most of the fairy tales do not have a good mother, the Cinderella, Rapunzel, Snow White, the mother's gone. So if she is there, she's often silent or kind of just a background figure, very rarely. So what we can see is, now this is on a a cultural level, what we can see culturally is that the good mother has kind of disappeared from our narrative as well as the divine feminine. And so what you can see is that what's taken its place 
as an initiatory figure is the negative mother and serves as the one who can do the wounding along with passive father or one who sacrifices his daughter. So you see those parallels in the culture as our feminine has been devalued in the West and in, in, in the also culturally, the father has not stood up for the feminine, has not stood up and protected her or valued her. And so that's again, kind of at a more literal standpoint, but then symbolically, it's about the soul. And it's about kind of that loss of soul in our culture, which is clearly in the process of reemerging. I, I couldn't have probably put it as eloquently as you have, but I do feel it's only in the last couple of years I've become very aware of mainstream media. And Disney has a lot to answer for. And mainstream media are celebrities and Hollywood and TV and shows and all this, all this tripe that we're being constantly bombarded with. Like we cannot escape it. We can't, it's either on our radio or on our TVs and it's literally attacking all of our senses. And we don't know it. Look, unless we're able to become awake and aware of that happening, it's just gonna go in and it's not, you're never gonna feel like it's affecting you because it's just so subliminal. It's so, it's so subtle and it's really destructive. And exactly as you're saying, you know, I've noticed it from a current TV point of view, but maybe not from the fairy tales point of view, but you're absolutely spot on. Like the divine feminine has been completely removed altogether. And yeah, absolutely. The, the story, the storybook fathers are either really aggressive, really mean to their daughters specifically, tend to leave them in a wood somewhere with some breadcrumbs. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. or send them off to their really nasty auntie's house, who's some sort of a weird demonic witch like do you know so it's, yeah that's incredible and we are being bombarded with it and that's what this podcast is about it's about bringing back real life into people's eardrums and into their eyes and into their world and it's about nurturing and nourishing their soul and just getting them back in contact making people aware that that's been missing so that they can then make their own decisions and widen their perspectives and allow it into their life if they want to and if they're not ready for that and it's not their time, that's their journey and they're right. entitled to that as right. well. But it's just about giving them that information. I love what you've just said. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. So, so the perspective that I take on this after working with the dreams and with the fairy tales is that, again, what's happened is our culture, because most things associated with the masculine are elevated, the things mm -hmm. with the feminine have been repressed for a long time. The symbolic language is the language of the feminine because it's the language of the soul. What's happened is the perspective on the fairy tale has been one of uh, coming from the mind. So we look at it literally. So they say, especially what I've heard as a feminist point of view is that the girl is passive. She's sitting around waiting for the handsome prince to show up and rescue her. But if you look at it symbolically and like I would a dream, what I would say is that when she's sitting and passively waiting is you sitting on your mat in India meditating. 
And that's the time, the period of the inner work. And if you look at the story symbolically, what you begin to see is the whole pattern and the path. And so this is a collective, like if we take something like Cinderella, we can say this is a collective story, an archetypal story, and it's a personal story. So I personally had my mother was not the good mother, my personal mother, and I was living the Cinderella story, cooking, cleaning. My mother was divorced, so I did it. So I literally lived it out. So when I go back and look at that story symbolically, I can see exactly what I need to clear in myself okay. in order to let the soul free. So the, the, the princess is a heroine. And the, the wounding, if you want to call it that, is actually the wounds that set up the initiation of awakening. So... We could say ideally, oh, it would be great if we all lived these little fantasy lives with mothers who are good and we live, but the awakening is triggered by the wounding. So the, the father had to be passive. The mother had to be aggressive or she, the girl had to end up, you know, if you look at like Cinderella, the stepsisters are not initiated. The stepsisters are not. It's Cinderella that's initiated. She's the one that becomes the queen. She's the one that awakens, not the other ones. So we've kind of taken a literal viewpoint of it. The same thing in terms of the divine feminine. The divine feminine, we believe, oh my gosh, she's, you know, she's totally been wiped out. But when I was working on my dissertation, I was intuitively guided to the Bible. And I did not grow up with it. A religious background. My mother was into new age belief systems. So we had nothing, didn't believe in actually organized religion. So I started having these phrases come to me from out of the Bible in the beginning, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And I was like, so I go and get my Bible that I got in my 13, when I was 13. And I'm like flipping through it. Okay, why am I, why do I keep getting this information? And I look at it and it says, you know, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth and it was all good. And, and he, um, let's see, oh, he created man in his image, male and female. He created them and put them in the Garden of Eden. And then Adam says he's lonely. And I'm like, wait a minute. What do you mean? You created him in our image, male and female. He created them and put them in the garden. Well, how did he end up being lonely if they were there? Like, where'd she go? So I was like, well, that's kind of weird. And so then I happen across this story synchronistically about Lilith, who was there in the beginning before Eve. She refused to be subservient to Adam. <laughs> and she left the garden. No way. So in my, my dissertation, that little story gets put back into the story. Yeah. Then she leaves. Then Eve is created. And God takes Eve out of creates it from Adam's rib when he is asleep, read unconscious, and makes calls her Eve, his helper. That's what it says in my Bible, his helper. I'm like, his helper? Well, that kind of makes sense. Lilith refused. And if you look I at- I know that Lilith, Lilith is a, an astrological term also. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So they've demonized her. They say she's a demon and she's like having- so the, the, the church did, but supposedly there's a story and it's based on the Jewish tradition 
And, and then if you look at Proverbs, which is where Sophia is, and Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom, which is where you get philosophy, lovers of Sophia. And so if you look in Proverbs, you'll see it says, I was there at the beginning before God laid the foundations of the earth. And so I take that and I move that to the beginning of the story. It says she's God's consort. Yes. Because there's a book called The Sophia Codes. Have you heard about The Sophia Codes? Yeah. yeah. I haven't read it. I've read some of it, but not all of it. And, and I've been going through my own little spiritual wobble over the last while where I'm like, am I doing the right thing? Am I believing the right thing? And then I'm kind of like, okay, I'm going to read this. And then I read this and I'm like, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like I know. And I come back to myself and it's just pure speed wobble. But, um, or spiritual wobble, but that's interesting. So the Sophia codes coming from Sophia is actually part of the beginning of the story as well. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. I, I, that particular book, I, I have it too. And I, I, I think I read a little bit of it a long time ago, but I haven't finished it. Or do I mind that? I'm not that familiar with it. I know of the title. Yeah. I just believe that the divine feminine is here and has been here. It's just a matter of we haven't seen it. So what I did in, in my dissertation was I just went through, and when I looked at the stories through a symbolic lens, what I discovered was what we have been told isn't true. And when I tell people the symbolic viewpoint, they're like, well, that makes total sense. So if you look at a story like of Lot's wife, are you familiar with that? She, she's not, no. they're supposed to be leaving um, Sodom and Gomorrah and she's not allowed to turn around as they're leaving and she defies God's rule and she turns around and she's turned into a pillar of salt as punishment. Oh, yes, I have heard that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I happened, that was one of the stories that happened to come up when I was working on my dissertation and I'm like, okay, so she's turned into a pillar of salt. So first of all, when you read the whole story, yeah, we never heard the whole story. So if you look in the, and read it, you're like, Okay, yeah, so, yeah, well, you know, this, that's kind of shady, and that's kind of not so great, but I'll set that aside for the moment. So I'm like, she turns around and looks back. Well, if you look again in the fairy tales and myths, looking, actually seeing something is really important. It happens over and over and over again. So that was the first thing that kind of piqued my curiosity, like, well, that's always a good thing. So I'm going to set that aside, like, like that, you know, maybe that was a good thing and not a bad thing. And then I thought, okay, so she's turned into a pillar. A pillar in a building is kind of an important thing. <laughs> and a pillar in the community is also someone who's really upright and upstanding. And salt is a substance that's salt of the earth. You need it for life. And also in alchemy, it's considered a permanent substance. So when you're talking about God, God is, and when you talk about the real and the unreal and the permanent and the impermanent, salt is the permanent. And so mm -hmm. as you take, you know, salt water and the water evaporates, the salt remains. So I'm like, okay, so those two things kind of are an indication that, you know, maybe we got it wrong, that she might've turned around and looked and like, maybe she's enlightened now. And then I was synchronistically guided to the Nag Hammadi, where the Gnostics call Sophia 
a pillar of salt. So we've been told, we know, we know the story, but we've been told the story. So the way I like to look at the fairy tales is if you think about it, you know, we've taken them again from a literal perspective, but if you went back and you said, okay, I have this story of initiation and awakening, I'm going to carry it from way back when through hundreds of years. How can I do that without the authorities realizing what story I'm telling? So if you are going to like talk about taking your power back from a, a religious perspective at certain times in history, those who deviated from the norm met with terrible fate. But let's just say symbolically encoded in these fairy tales was the path of awakening. And so you hand it down from generation to generation orally. The authorities think it's nonsense. They think it's nonsensical. Mm -hmm. It slides right under their noses century after century and comes down to us. And now we've been given these stories that have come to us from hundreds of years ago, basically unchanged. Yeah. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why has those stories that are supposed to, you know, we're interpreting as really nonsense and not and, and negative and derogatory. If that was the case, why on earth would they have lasted for hundreds of years? It's a lovely question. Yeah. So I think it's because it was to help us. So it's a gift. It was a gift to us. And this is how the universe managed to get it through the filters and so what happens is, again, like a dream. So what happens is they're, they're telling these stories and on a subconscious level, they're getting the awakened, the story of awakening uh, for the soul. You know, maybe that nugget for the soul to just keep it going a little bit longer or whatever. Wow. So, so you, so what's the next stage then with your clients? What would you do from kind of that? So you bring them through the fairy tale concept and uh, what would you do kind of from there? What's the normal well, transition? Well, I like to make it practical. So when we talk about the, the dominoes, right, going back to the initial domino and then subsequently, so the dreams are going to tell us what's, what's happening in the subconscious level and then what needs to come in. And so this is a point that I've really started to hone in on more recently is, you know, when I was looking at your website, I think it's like the old narrative, Right having to kind of fall away and then, or this is like Lot's wife. She looks and she witnesses at the crumbling. So the crumbling of the city, the destruction of the city is to the description of the narrative that we've been handed by the culture. So we are witnessing the dis right now. <laughs> we are in the midst of it. Yeah, absolutely. This, this crumbling yeah. of the structure that we have been standing on. I believe that what, what's happening is, so anything in the material world, anything that's in the impermanent is what's falling away to reveal that which is permanent and that becomes the new foundation. So what the dreams do is, besides kind of giving you information about everything from past lives to present lives, to relationships, to your health, to your diet, whatever, they're going to tell you what's taking its place. So the dreams are also giving us that next step. They're also showing us the new earth. They're also showing us the new paradigms and the new patterns that we need to be living. People say like, you know, what about the fairy tale happily ever after? And so my sense of it is, is that there, it's, the story is done. 
the old stories are done. And so because we're creating something new that hasn't been here before, yes. we no longer have these narratives from history that we're carrying with us anymore, but it's about opening to the soul and the heart, whatever you want to call it, spirit, in order to receive what's next, what's coming. And at one point I asked, you know, my guides, I said, about the feminine, I was like, you know, we need, we need models, we need role models for the feminine. And they said, this is not a time of role models. This is a time of going in and like just allowing what can happen to be expressed and to be embodied and to give, you know, come forth through you. So if somebody, you know, wanted to work with their dreams, because I've done a little bit of dream work, it sounds easier <laughs> than it is. It just takes, it takes a bit of practice to get into it. I was actually doing it in Colombia using master plants and, and all that kind of thing. So it was maybe a little bit easier because of that, because I had the tools to go with it. But if you wanted to engage more with your dreams, if you wanted to create, if you wanted to go to bed tonight and have a dream, what's because sometimes we go to bed and we don't have dreams. Sometimes we go to bed and we have intense dreams. Other times we have recurring dreams. So what do you feel is the reasoning behind no dreams, recurring dreams, really strong, vivid dreams, and how can we navigate them? Or how do you feel that we can navigate them? Because we can. It's just yeah. It takes so typically, um, there's several things can be happening. So if you're used to not listening and you kind of dismiss them, then I think dreams are random. They can, sometimes they don't come because people are out of balance. And I think their daytime life is too overwhelming. So what you notice is when the virus came and everybody was forced to stay at home, the dreams started increasing for people because mm -hmm. I think that yeah. we're too busy and distracted kind of by life most of the time that we don't listen. And the dreams don't wanna overwhelm us with even more content. But oftentimes when they do break through, they can break through because something is important. So what I often suggest is, because like you said, it can be kind of complex to learn. So when I work with people, I try to work on a longer time frame basis because the way that I work is about empowerment. So when people come to work with me, I want them to walk away and say, okay, I can keep doing this. I now have a practice. I now know how to approach this and how to do this on my own because that's really what it is. It's really about kind of partnering with our dream source in order to get through life in a way that we can be healthy and live on purpose. So what I try to talk about with people if I'm not working directly with them is to start with the emotion of it. So to really just bring it down into the body and feel where it is because this practice is also can just be daily life. So if you're not remembering your dreams, you can use intention to remember and say, I'm going to remember before you go to sleep at night, put a mm -hmm. pad beside your bed. But to, to begin to work with them is really just to notice them and you can just witness them. And that's enough. If that's all you can do, to actually begin to work with them and transform them, to just be with the emotion of it. If you can, you could sit with the uh, symbols of it and say, what is this saying? If you can sit quietly and wait for a response. The more you're able to do that, the more the information will come forward. 
So it's like everything has, whether it's, whether it's an experience, a direct experience with someone that you had day to day that is out of the ordinary, that evoked some kind of emotion, or whether it's a dream, if you can just sit with something and just be with it, then oftentimes the wisdom in it will just come to the surface, like you said, when you meditated. So you can, there are ways that you can do these things just to start and get yourself going. And then just ask yourself, what does this mean to me? What does this symbol mean specifically to me? And as you said, journaling is an amazing way to get through things. And you could just really, even like I was talking about before the stream of consciousness, you could really just put the dream there and just do, just write whatever comes into mind and you'll be amazed at, <laughs> I'm sure you've done it. Mm. Yeah. It actually just, it just starts to kind of unfold. Literally what I do is I just write exactly what I saw in the dream. I just write the details of it as much as I can humanly possible. It doesn't even have to make sense. It's like, oh, I saw a pink ball and then I saw a tree. Just keep writing it. But then by the time you get to the end of it, what I find come out in the correct way on the page even. So you don't even have to try. All you have to do is just write what you're thinking. And your higher self is already giving you the sequence of what you need to remember in the sequence that you need to make sense of it. The other thing I also find is, and what we did when we were in Colombia, you basically, when you're going to bed, you declare, you invite the fact that you're going to have a dream, exactly as you say, because it, you're putting intention on it and, and attention is drawing it to you. So that's the first part. The second part was to, just before you go asleep, to go through your day in reverse. So walk backwards through your day. And so what you're doing is you're decluttering what you did in the day out of your mind. And then it means that your mind is really getting to work. It's giving you the good stuff. So your dreams are not being wasted on, I put a glass on the table and I drank water. It's more subconscious and it gets to the good stuff as such. But it was also very interesting to realize we have several REM cycles every night and they get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And actually by the time you wake up in the morning and have that really vivid dream that you've woken up and you're like, wow, it was really vivid and it seemed like it was really long. The chances are it was probably either the shortest of your dreams, which it is at the end, or what you're thinking is been several different dreams all memoried together at the same time. So you wake up thinking, God, that was a really long dream, but you're actually putting and pasting them all together, which is just it's just fascinating. I love the world of dream. It really is fascinating. Yeah. That, so the other, one of the other interesting things that I've noticed is if you, when you wake up, if you pay attention to what you're thinking as you begin your day. So as you get into the shower, you're making your coffee, your mind's kind of wandering around. And what I noticed was that the mind's wandering was actually related to the dreams. And so it was, it was giving me context. So the dream would be symbolic, but what my mind was running through was maybe a song that just popped into my head or yeah. some memory of something that had happened in the past couple of days. And if it was enough to kind of, for me to remember it, then I would notice later when I worked on the dream, I'd be like, holy cow, like I totally was thinking this already when I got on the shower. So it's incredible. It is. It's, it's, I mean, I have never, ever waned on my amazement with the dreams. They're just fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So tell me this, if people wanted to work with you directly, how would they work with you? And what's the best way of, of contacting you? Or you've got a website, Facebook page. 
Yeah, I'm everything I do is under wisdom of the swan. So I have a blog, website, you know, everything they can, or Facebook pages, it's all wisdom of the swan. And I work with people on uh, Skype, typically try for three to six months. I've kind of tried to be a little bit more flexible with the virus and people's, you know, are a little bit more challenged financially right now. But it's really about developing a practice because what happens is if people come in for one session, they're like, oh my God, that was amazing. And I talked to them six months later and they're like, I'm still working on that dream. Uh, that's when I decided like, I've got to help people to understand like that they bring the big dream. That's often what brings them in, but that week after week, the dreams are helping them to get there. And they're assisting them step by step in, in achieving that embodiment of that. And you're building a relationship with your higher self. You're building a relationship with your dreams because really we don't engage with them very often. We just see them as something that comes and goes. So I find the same thing as with Reiki. I practice Reiki. And when I'm doing, you know, distance Reiki or, you know, clients who are with me personally, it's great to come for one session and you do, you leave and you'll feel like, oh my God, that's amazing. And I can't believe I feel this way. But really you need three to five sessions. You need really at least five sessions. And and sometimes I think that that's seen as a, a sales or a marketing tool. It's like, come back for more so I can take more of your money. When in actual fact, it's not. It's like the first session is like, wow, because it's so new and it's so different. But what actually really happens over the next couple of sessions is you're building a relationship with your own energy field and you're actually bringing yourself back into balance. And so what you want to do is come back into balance and then, you know, go do your thing, come back once every few weeks, once every few months, once every few years, as long as you're in here and not like this. So with the dreams, it's such an unconscious thing that, yes, I can totally see why you'd need to do it over a period of months it's a longer period of time to to get a relationship going with that well when you when you're working with them in an ongoing way when you commit to that usually you're you're having the dreams you mentioned you had a book as well so what's the name of your book and where can people get their hands on it because it actually sounds really interesting thank you it's uh initiation of the soul i can see it initiation of the soul by pamela alexander great and that's your artwork on the front as well isn't it Yes. Yeah, yeah. You've done your artwork is lovely. I had a look at it as well. Really, really beautiful. Thank you. That came from the dreams. It's like you're very multi-talented and it really it really seems like you've found found your thing, which is just it's beautiful. It's lovely that you're doing your thing. A soulpreneur. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Anything that you would like a message of your own that you would like other women to know to kind of summarize everything that you're doing or what you stand for or your own intrepid wisdom. Yeah, you know what keeps coming to me as we have the, as we talk, and one of the things that really came through the dreams and through the book of fairy tales is that it can appear as though we are victims and we are victims of whatever has happened to us. We aren't victims, and yeah. so over and over again, from dreams that prepare us for the deaths of our loved ones to the stories to the religion, everything is showing us the way and really life is on our side. And the more that we recondition ourselves to understanding that we're not victims, it really empowers us to create this new earth and live in it. And we're, you know, you, you and your generation are so inspiring to me. I love working with you guys because 
I can say whatever I want. You guys totally are open-minded and this stuff that would blow away older generations to be like, what? <laughs> you guys are like, yes, yes, yes. So we are going to do this. We are so going to do this together. We, we really can. We can really pull this out. I, I'm just so confident and so excited. And, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I'm so lovely to meet you. It thank really you been. thank you it's been amazing I, I i feel really blessed because since i started this project which is like very recently i've been really blessed there's been so many really very inspirational women who are just pouring into my in my facebook and my whatsapp and my instagram and i'm like oh my god where are all these people coming from but <laughs> it's incredible it's really incredible and i've actually i've just written a book myself and part of it is very much about understanding that everything in life it's a signpost and the signpost is facing back to ourselves and yeah. ultimately back to where we came from and that's all it is and it's just to be alert and awake to that and I love that it's been so lovely talking to you it's been really really Me nice too. So Me too. people want to check you out definitely head on over like your Facebook page your website and definitely buy your book